Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, I'm Bruce Taisley. How's your week been? You know, it's been such a strange year that you can't help but celebrate on the things that you're really grateful for. And uh, there's been some, I don't know whether you follow it or not, there's been some truly wonderful tennis in the last week. Nothing makes me happier than, than watching incredible tennis. And uh, both in the women's game and in the men's game, there were some... Just remarkable performances last week. Made me very happy. They're going to miss it now. Really deprived of it. After two Grand Slams in a month, we're deprived of it now till next year. What a blessing to live in such a glorious era of tennis. I'm in the midst of presenting to about 2,000 people in the course of the next few weeks. I'm doing some climate presentations that I mentioned on my newsletter. So I'm speaking to a whole range of different organisations from... Organisations of psychiatrists to regional NHS trusts through to recruitment companies, all manner of organisations. So thank you for everyone who responded to the newsletter and I'm sort of, I'm part of Al Gore's Climate Reality Programme, so I'm thrilled to be part of that. So we're in the midst of this series about community. We've had some, I think, some brilliant episodes. You know, I consider myself learning as much as, as any listener and so I learned so much from Sarah Drinkwater. I was fascinated to hear the practical on, on the ground experience of Abadesios and Sadi. And today's episode, I mean, it'll be pretty clear my thoughts on today's episode from the off. I just think Casper to Kyle is just this visionary, really, in terms of the area of, of community. Last year, I really adored the book Lost Connections by. Johan Hari and and Casper I think draws on some of the similar themes Casper says one at uh, one stage in his book he says disconnection sours the sweet things in life and makes them nearly unbearable and I think you know there's a really important lesson in that for, for all of us to understand how human beings when they feel connected can feel empowered energized and inspired and when they feel disconnected they can feel hollow and and meaningless, really. Casper is a real expert on this. How I discovered Casper is he wrote a free book with Angie Thurston uh, from the Harvard Divinity School a couple of years ago, about five years ago, he corrected me, which was called How We Gather, which you can still still get for free online now. It's a wonderful exploration of how in sort of post-religious, secular society, groups were getting together in ways that seemed to have been inspired by re- the religious world that went before them. It was just really interesting how groups were taking their inspiration from the learnings of previous religions. Now he's written a great book, The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices, which is full of really specific actions of how we form communities, how we form groups with others, how we forge our own understanding of our contribution to those groups. His contention, I think, is that a lot of things that religion's done to show how to build communities are what we can learn from. Um, Casper's perspective is, is wonderful. He's very respectful of religion, even though he, as he'll talk about, he sits outside religion himself. 
Look, this series of episodes has been about understanding how our organisations can shape a sense of belonging in us, especially when we're no longer physically together. Um, I've really felt like the episodes have been a, a journey for me. And, and fabulously, no one's professed to know all of the answers. There's, there's plenty of cautionary notes. I often find sort of that conviction that sometimes people try to project can be superficially appealing, but on consideration, nothing's ever that certain. And that's why the, the guests over the last three weeks have been so satisfying. Two things stand out that Casper says. The first one is that we all know that if there's a strong relationship between people, you can always navigate the technical things that come up on a team. And secondly, he says, really, it goes against the spirit of community that someone in a community could fire someone else. So I think, you know, he's feeling he's work can use communities to foster alliances, but the whole workplace can't be a single community. That's interesting. Community for him is built on safety. As you'll hear, Casper is not only brilliant company, but um, incredibly quotable. If you are the sort of person who likes taking notes, you're going to find that there's plenty of opportunities to, to write down some of his incredible but gently told wisdom. Yeah, it'll be pretty clear I loved this discussion. So let me properly introduce Casper. Casper to Kyle. He's a fellow at the Harvard Divinity School. He's the co-host of a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And he's also the co-founder of a startup called Sacred Design Lab. And there's links to all of those things in the notes, along with his, his book he co-authored, How We Gather. Here's my conversation with Casper to Kyle. Casper, thank you so much for joining me. Firstly, I adored How We Gather, which was your your free PDF that you, I guess you sort of distributed, was it a couple of years ago? 2015 and, um, now. Yeah, a long time. Get out of here. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, uh, you, and you've got this new book, Rituals, which in, in my state reading it the other night, I wrote down that I thought you were a genius. So um, I'll take that. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce. Uh, see you next time. <laughs> Let's start at the, the outset. Firstly, I'm just interested in, into your journey into this. How did you find that you were so fascinated with the idea of communities and, and the, the idea of adapting religious elements of community for secular uses? I'm just really interested in your start point. Yeah, it's rather an unusual situation because I, I grew up in the UK. My parents are both Dutch, which I think Holland next to Denmark is the most secular country in the world. And, and you know, there was no religion in my upbringing at home. And, you know, I came out as a teenager. So as, as a, a gay young person, you know, religion was either irrelevant or cruel. So it was really absent from my life. But I went to a Waldorf school, a Steiner school, which, which some of our listeners may be familiar with. But it's essentially a very kind of creative, holistic focus focus in, in an education system. And it has a lot of, first of all, a very strong community often around the school and a lot of kind of festivals that you celebrate. So Michaelmas and May Day, where you're dancing around the Maypole. And, you know, we'd go and sing to the cattle at the local farm on Christmas Eve. And so there were these, these amazing rituals that really gave the year some structure. And I think the more I look back on, on those early years, the more I see their influence on me. The reason how it you know, came to be that I ended up really thinking about this in a professional context is that as a, my first career was kind of working in London in the, in the NGO world, so working for Oxfam and, and WWF, thinking about climate change especially, I was really passionate in understanding how we might transform not just the policies around climate and the kind of the necessary politics of it, but really the paradigm through which we understand who we are and, and how we're in relationship with the natural world. Because I kept thinking about how, as an organization, you're, you're kind of talking to individuals, right? People on your email list, people watching the news or, or reading something. And from history, I was always seeing that it really changed culture was when a community shifted. And I realized that neither I nor most of the people that I was working with and for really were in structures of community. And so I became really passionate mm -hmm. about understanding how communities work, how can you strengthen them, how, and then how do you mobilize them to kind of change the world around us. Honestly, I, I didn't know where to look. And I ended up at Harvard uh, here in America doing a public policy program and then heard about this school across campus called the Divinity School, which I assumed was just for Catholic priests. I really didn't know a thing. And so there I turned up as a, you know, a gay atheist saying, can I come to Divinity School? And they said, sure, we'll have you. And, and it really felt like opening a treasure chest of understanding all of the strategies and technologies that have helped 
especially religious communities, cohere and develop and deepen over millennia. So fascinating. One of the things that really struck me, I know you, you talk in your writing that you didn't especially, or you, you were a little bit lonely at your school, but for a lot of people, school is a really interesting time because it seems to be one of the times in our life that we most vividly feel community and we most vividly feel connection with people around us. And yet most of us find the rest of our life we mourn the loss of that, the absence of that. So it's so interesting that you've tried to study organizations that have had entry points to community or have assembled rituals to, to create community. Because it seems, even though it's something that we really cherish when we experience it and we witness, we, we really recognize it when we're experiencing it, it seems for a lot of people, they just feel like they've got no access point, no entry point to try and reactivate that feeling. And I, mm. I, I find that curious. Yeah, I would say, you know, after that kind of Waldorf school, I ended up in a, in a kind of posh English prep school and then, a, and then a boarding school where definitely I was massively, massively lonely. And I think one of the, <laughs> one of the experiences that you have is either you fit in and it really is a feeling of like, it's kind of like a second family, right? Like you spend so yeah. much time together and especially over the years, right? You really get to know each other's lives in, in all its depth. So either you fit in or you don't and you feel like you're spending all of these years kind of on the outside looking in. And that, that was much more my experience. So wherever you fall, you're very conscious of the structures of relationship, if, if, if they're good or bad either way. And I think one of the reasons why school and even university can be a really foundational experience of community life is that you do have those social structures that hold you in relationship, whether it's something as simple as being in a class together, or if you're going, you know, maybe you're going on a trip together or whatever it is, there's a daily rhythm which holds you in relationship. And then at university, there might be, you know, clubs of mutual interest, or you play in the orchestra together, or you're on the rugby team, or, you know, whatever it is, there are these conditions of relationship. I like to think of them as containers that hold you together. Even if you're not necessarily that into it, the work is done for you. And once we're into adulthood and we're no longer within those superstructures, we have to stitch those together ourselves. And it's one of the reasons why I think the workplace is such an intense place of, of our kind of relational focus, because it's one of the few structures that we still have where we're encountering people over and over and again. And so it's no surprise that people are forming friendships and, and relationships of meaning, you're oriented around a shared purpose at the workplace, because so much of the other kind of structures of community have, have fallen away. So let's take a step, because I want to try and see what we can apply of this to work and, and sort of work divided and then work reunited in the future. Mm. So just wanted at the outset, I find your work on this also thoughtful. So I've sort of heard this before from you, but I'd love you to define what community means to you. That's mm. <laughs> a great question because um, it's so rich. But I often talk about belonging and my colleagues at Sacred Design Lab and I talk about the experience of belonging as being one where we are known and know others and are loved and love others. That that, that real sense of, of connection is, is really grounded. And I think that's the, the quality of experience that we have when we really feel like we're in in community. Now, of course, there's kind of different gradations of community. You have that sense of shallow community, as Scott Peck talks about, where people are nice enough to each other and you you might wave to each other now and then say hello and everything's very polite, but people really avoid conflict or anything that could kind of break that politeness. And then you've got experiences of deeper community where people have been through hard things together and have made it through to the other side. And so there's a trust and a uh, an understanding and a commitment to one another that I think really speaks to that that deeper sense of community. So for me, when, I, when I'm in a new community or I'm, or I'm visiting a place where people are together, I'm always looking for the signs of, you know, have people withstood difficulties together and made it through to the other side, right? Do they really know each other? Has that love been tested and, and found strong enough to continue? Because that's, that's when you really know that it's uh, the real thing. Because I guess that's an established community, but communities must start somewhere. Absolutely. Um, I'm just interested. So, so, so let's get into, I guess, the meat of what I'm really fascinated by is the, mm. this notion that certainly as we now find ourselves working away from each other and, and maybe some of the the togetherness, the cohesiveness that just proximity often brings about. Yes. You know, if you're presented with the physical presence of someone every day, then sometimes you find humor in their company. Sometimes you find companionship in their company. Mm. And 
and that sort of ritual of b- being around each other every day or certain big company meetings mm. actually helps sort of form this this collectiveness. And obviously, as we're separated from that now, and that's no longer there, I suspect a lot of organizations are finding what I've heard from a few companies, where a few companies are saying, it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah. You know, we're getting the job done. We're on meetings. We're all smiling. We've even had team drinks, but uh, <laughs> Zoom drinks, but it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah. And so th- that, for me, was uh, why I was so taken with Sarah Drinkwater's first piece and why... You know, I'd love to pick your brains. Firstly, do you feel that there are lessons about community that we can draw and bring to the workplace? And if there are, what are the cautionary notes? And what what's your thinking with regards to all of this, really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so much that we can we can learn. Um, you know, I think just in terms of the COVID context. One of the ways in which communities get built are, are really about intensity over time. And so if you're coming into the office every day and sitting next to someone, right, you're having that kind of low, low level intensity contact, but it's happening really frequently. So over time, you do get to that sense of depth together because it's just about that longevity. Now, if you're not sitting next to each other or you're not interacting as frequently, the moments when you do interact, it, it needs to go deeper if it's more infrequent. My team, for example, has been working remotely for, for some number of years, and uh, we'll make sure to see each other usually about every six weeks, if, uh, perhaps every two months in person, and, and, and we'll spend at least a week together every year where we really go deeper. So you have that, that sense of a rhythm that gives you a sense of connection that can kind of withstand the times when you're apart. I think the difficulty right now is that we're getting the worst of both. You know, we're not able to go deep together and we're not having that, that regular contact. So I think that's why there's, there's additional stress. And I want to pick up on something you said, Bruce, that we're able to get the work done, right? We're able to do the to-dos. We're able to, to, get, to get through it, honestly. But the, the more creative thinking, the moments we have to, where we have to butt heads to really figure something out, that's much more difficult to do when we're only seeing one another at distance and, and remotely because there's, there's so much more at stake. You know, you don't want to risk the relationship. You don't want to, because there's no opportunity to kind of, you know, have a drink and talk it through or go on a walk or, mm. or sit down face to face and hash it out together. So I think there's a thinness in our relationships at work right now, which, which just makes that kind of imaginative or creative or conflict resolving work much more difficult. So as we think about those challenges that we're in and and generally like how do you sustain healthy relationships, there's so much from religious traditions that explores exactly those questions. One of my favorite, and we talk about these as kind of spiritual technologies, right, that these traditions give us that we can reimagine and recontextualize. And one of my favorites is the practice of covenant. Now, if you think about covenant uh, as opposed to a contract, contract is usually when, you know, you pay me 10 quid and I give you you however many oranges (laughs) you can buy for a tenner. So there's a clear exchange of goods. So we're we're agreeing on what to do. A covenant is really saying, listen, we don't know what we're going to do, but what we can agree to is how we're going to be. So how do we navigate challenges? How do we navigate life? but with a set of agreements of how we're going to be in relationship. And so this, this was often an organizing principles, both for individual congregations, but also networks of congregations, right? We're not going to see each other regularly because we're, we're, we're far away from one another, but what are the principles that are going to hold us in relationship over time? And so what that looks like for us in our team context is we came together, we started doing this about three years ago, saying, how do we want to be as colleagues? You know, what are the, what are the commitments we're agreeing to? What are the things we each need to work well? These kind of conversations happen all the time in workplaces. And sometimes they get written up nicely and you end up with a nice charter or a set of norms or or, or company values, whatever. But here's the thing I love about covenant. It isn't just a noun, it's a verb. And so every week at our team meeting, we read aloud that covenant in a sort of litany, right? Everyone reads a paragraph, it's about a page long. And then we have about 20 minutes in which we ask ourselves, where have we lived up to our covenant? right? What can we celebrate? How can we lift up the things that we've done well? And then what are the moments where we've fallen short? Because with a covenant, as ever, you're always going to fail at something, right? It's a, it's a living, it's a living document. You're always engaged. You do that every week or every six weeks. And we, we do that every week. That, we do that every week. So gosh. we do that over Zoom. Yeah. And what I love about it is, first of all, you make space to to, to address the little niggling kind of issues that have maybe been bubbling up under the surface. Where you know you can say, "Hey, in that meeting, I, I really struggled with the language you used to describe X." Right. So th- there's only seven days before before you have an opportunity to address something mm. that so doesn't build up. So that's that's the first thing. So you have a bit of that that kind of healthy you know team dynamics 
uh, opportunity. But the other thing is that we really get to solidify and kind of put in gold letters the things that we love, the things, the way that we do want to be, because we get to live up to, we get to celebrate and lift one another up every week and say, wow, you know, when you did that, I was so impressed because, you know, for, for example, one of, one, of, one of us is that we will use right speech, that the things we say behind people's backs are the things we would say to their faces. Now, that is very difficult sometimes. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, we, you know, we, we will say to each other literally on the call sometimes when, when, we all, when we all know something is in our minds, we'll just put in the Slack channel, right speech, right speech, right speech. You know, so it's, it's a way of holding each other to those values and those intentions that we all have, but we're all going to struggle with all the time. So that, that's one example of, of, of a kind of piece of religious wisdom or a practice that we can draw on from the spiritual world that I think is enormous value in, in our work lives. If we're sitting here now and, and an organization, I, I heard you talking before and, and asking people where they go to find community. And so I, you know, I asked myself actually where I find community. And yeah. I, I have a, a few traditions that I do around Christmas. I have some drinks with friends. I often cook a big meal for a lot of other friends. Mm. Um, you know, I was sort of, I was connecting with those things in my old job. I used to work at Twitter and we, and we used to have something that was, this incredibly important event for us, 4.30 every Friday, the whole, the whole of the UK office would gather and we would have tea time. And, and if, uh, I mean, if, if anyone ever took a moment to look at the content, they would say, okay, this is sort of quite trivial. Actually, I don't see a business use for this. I'm going to eliminate it. Mm. Some sort of soulless consultant would probably <laughs> do that, say that we, we can save you know, X thousands of pounds, but it was such an important yeah. ritual. It was in such an important moment of togetherness that everyone would leave the week on this, this sort of uptick emotional lift. Yeah. And it really defined for a lot of people what it meant to be there. It, were, it had moments of real candor when things were, were yeah. going badly. Um, it had moments of wonderful, joyous celebration, had moments of welcoming. It was really important. So like, it, it struck me that, you know, that I've, I definitely recognize some of these things. But I just wonder if a, a company was sitting there now thinking, okay, we're interested in that. In, in this, or we're interested in maybe developing a few things, where would they start? Mm. I love that example. And it's something I talk about in the book as well, how, how rituals mm -hmm. are not just decorative, right? It's, they're not just there to, to make things more pleasant or more beautiful, although they can do those things. Rituals are also formative that rituals embody a set of values and they often embody a story or a myth, as Joseph Campbell would say, that when we practice that ritual, we're actually re-embodying or we're retelling that story. We're recommitting to those values. So if you think about in the Jewish Passover, there's the retelling of the Exodus stories as, as, as the Jews uh, escaped uh, from Pharaoh's grasp in, in Egypt. And it helps us think about, okay, you know, what slavery do I need to, to liberate myself from or do I need to be liberated from? Or in the Christian Eucharist, it's kind of partaking in, in the bread and the wine to help us remember that we are one body, to use the Christian language, that we're one body in Christ and that we're inherently connected to one another. So when we practice something like Friday afternoon drinks, on the one hand, you could say, well, that doesn't serve any purpose, but actually it massively does because it reminds you that actually the people from finance who are really annoying you with your expenses are actually Tony and Sarah and, you know, Faisal, and actually they're great guys and gals and we're all part of one team, right? So, so they, they have practical purposes in that sense. But how do you think about those things during, during a pandemic? Very different question. I would always advise people to, when they're thinking about ritual design or, or kind of lifting up things that, that help a, a company remember who they are or a team remember what's really important, it's very easy to, to start with like, okay, I want to I create something really uh, beautiful and amazing and we're going to kind of impose that onto the team. Much better to start by looking, kind of go ritual spotting. Like, what are people mm. already doing? What, what are the practices that already exist in the community? And to lift them up and give them some structure and space and time and, and resources that kind of establish them at a level of formality that, that lifts up the, you know, everyone's understanding that this is something that's important. So, like, it might be that there are some amazing gifts that are always being shared around. 
make make an incredible like gallery of gifts uh right it might be about we did one kind of ritual spotting tour at a a company out in california we spent two days interviewing all their employees and looking at how the space was used turns out the it team had this amazing bar that they created where on friday they would have drinks and anytime they traveled somewhere they would get the most kind of interesting looking alcoholic beverage and bring that back and everyone would have a taste of it on, on a friday afternoon now of course Alcohol is is a, a shortcut, but often an exclusionary one. So I don't want to point to that as mm. the way to go. But you can just see how, as human beings, we're naturally ritual-making creatures. We are meaning-making creatures. And so it's really about looking at what people are already doing and giving that some some depth and structure and, and, and support to kind of help, help help make that ritual something that's more shared. Yeah, I had um, you've really sort of triggered a, a load of thoughts in my head. I had a wonderful previous episode with someone who used to work at Radio One and he mm. he described actually he described a couple of rituals that that they used to have there. One of them was that they used to do these expansive and um, laudatory leaving speeches. Mm. So they used to see it as a rite of passage and there yeah. was no shame ever to go on to greater success having been an alumni Amazing. of Radio One. And so they used to do these speeches that they said were just like just valedictory moments of real celebration. Mm. And the other one they used to do was that they, it was really interesting how he described it. He said, we used to have these pizza meetings where the chief exec of Radio One would pay for pizzas for everyone and he would gather them in this really small crowded room really fascinating you know this guy who was talking to me uh, told me that you know that a lot of them had background in nightclub promoting and they knew that the size of the room had a really sort of kinetic impact on the mm-hmm. feeling of the people in there if people were crammed in sharing pizzas there was a moment of kinship of of you know you, you talk about the importance of food as a marker of identity yeah. But there was there was this, this sort of shared experience that we're breaking bread together, but we're really crammed in close to each other. Wouldn't be COVID compliant. <laughs> I just want to add that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it was really interesting. And so as you were talking about the importance of these things, I thought, wow, well, look, anyone who wanted to take that culture and take it further must immediately start and focus on those two already existing things. Those leaving speeches and and the pizza meetings, they sound like two existing structures that are there to be amplified and, and celebrated. And I, I'm reading that from what you're saying. That feels like a good approach. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the place where my mind goes, you know, that's kind of part one is to affirm what people are already doing. What I love to think about in then part two is what can we learn from religious traditions that help us deepen or amplify those things that exist? So let's take that pizza meeting. And, and of course, I, I, I don't know much, but what I hear and what you're describing immediately reminds me of the practice of pilgrimage, because one of the markers of pilgrimage were that everyone was, was equal on the journey or at least they should have been, right? So there was a sense that the the social hierarchies of the normal world are collapsed and there's a kind of temporary communitas, as scholars call it, this, this temporary social structure that emerges on the road in which we are all equal. And so you have Lord sitting next to, to pauper. And there's these different kind of conversations that can happen because you're in this kind of liminal space. You're in this in-between time. And so as we're cramped together and everyone's eating pizza out of a box, suddenly it doesn't matter that you're director of HR and you're, you know, and an intern, you're both sitting there with, <laughs> with pepperoni on your face and the quality of relationship just feels different in that kind of time boxed moment. And so a different kind of conversation is possible. What can we learn from pilgrimage that would help that pizza conversation uh, really be more effective? That For me, that's at least you know, where, where my creative juices really start flowing because you can really draw on that ancient wisdom. I, I guess the best thing about thinking about this, and you come at it from a, a mm. secular but res- respectful position, is that basically religion has just been beta testing all of this for, exactly. <laughs> you know, for millennia, right? For like thousands of years. And they've just worked. If you're trying to build like a cohesive, well-bonded unit, <laughs> these things really work. So, <laughs> Um, so go on. So, so tell me wh- what else we could be seeking inspiration from. Because there's a really interesting fine line for me on this. Yeah. You know, you describe um, you describe how CrossFit has got a lot of these quasi spiritual and quasi religious elements. And you know, with a disapproving eye, you might say that yeah. this is 
cultural appropriation. So, um, I mean, and I guess they sort of, they tread a fine line on that. But go on, give me the framework of how maybe any of us thinking about how we can make our workplaces better. There is lessons from religion and spirituality. Yeah. Well, let let me say a couple of things before we dive in, because this it does get us into that kind of hot water territory if we're not careful. So the first thing that I want to say is that I I think about religion (laughs) is that as the ways in which human beings have made meaning of their life experience, right? The rituals that we we create, the beliefs that we hold, um, the types of relationships that we're in, uh, uh, the practices that we have. In some sense, religion only kind of became a separate category from culture only some number of hundred years ago. In a world where everyone belonged to the same structure of churches or the same geographically based kind of parish system, to to try and separate religion from life was impossible. So uh, let let me first say that, which is, for me, religion is so much more than do you believe in X, right? That's a, that's a very narrow sense of what religion is about. It's, it's really mu- this much more expansive, um, you know, where do we find meaning? What do we do to mark time? How do we memorialize the dead, right? All of those questions are wrapped up in religion. When you think about what's happened, certainly over the last 50 years, and even 100 years, certainly in the UK, America, of course, much, much more religious still than, than England, is that you've seen sort of an unbundling of religion. So that the things that people used to go to religion for are now being fulfilled by other places. Uh, and that's everything from education and healthcare, most obviously, but even things like finding a sense of community, who you ask to, to officiate your wedding, how do you celebrate the festivals in your life? Maybe we watch the Oscars more than we celebrate Michaelmas, <laughs> you know, what, what, whatever it is. So, so we're finding different things to fulfill those same functions. And so when I write about CrossFit or SoulCycle or, uh, you know, all sorts of fitness communities, but also arts groups and justice groups, they're doing in our lives the things that religion or religious institutions used to do. So when I talk about CrossFit as a place where spiritual things are happening. That's what I mean. People are getting married in their CrossFit gym. They're seeking out their fitness instructor to navigate a divorce or to ask them advice on what to do about a diagnosis. They're eating certain foods and not others as a marker of community difference. There's a sort of evangelism, certainly with CrossFit, that the old joke is, how do you know someone goes to Harvard, is vegan, or does CrossFit? they'll tell you, right? There's, there's a real orientation towards trying to change everyone's life because your life has been changed by CrossFit. So all, all of that is to say, that's the kind of context that we're working with. Um, and, and the way that I, I structure the book, and I, I think is a helpful way to think about how these practices can serve us today, is to think about the core experience, I think, of, of, of at least one of them right now is this sense of disconnection, disconnection from ourselves, disconnection from one another, uh, the place that we live in, the, the land, the natural world, um, and then finally, the sense of transcendence, so that's disconnection from something bigger than ourselves. And so what I, what I invite people to think about is to look at what are the practices in your life that do help you connect across those four layers. Um, and then to look, as we were talking about, at these different religious traditions, these practices that help you reconnect to what matters most. I love the quotation that you say in the book, which is disconnection sours the sweet things in life Mm. and makes them nearly unbearable. And uh, yeah, I really strongly subscribe to that. I think, you know, these these really strong evidence that a lot of us are feeling more disconnected. And the the interesting thing for me is that if the lesson of the internet, and I've said this before, the, the listeners might be bored of me. <laughs> but it's new to but, me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's less than the internet is that one thing the internet is very good at is it's very good at building communities of strong affinity of opinions. Yeah. You know, if you and I are on the opposite ends of the screens and we both agree that we love the Golden State Warriors or we both agree that uh, we celebrate some political figure, yeah. then, you know, you and I are united in believing that each other is is right and is great, but screens have proven very ineffective at making at bridging the gap when people feel enmity rather than yes. uh, affinity with each other. We we tend not to give people not to give people the benefit of the doubt, and I think there's research that says That's when right. people communicate principally through text they they generally stop trusting each other and so what i'm really interested in is if the context is that we're seeing greater sense of disconnection societally 
it's almost certain that working remotely, for all the wonderful upsides that remote work has clearly demonstrated it's got, there's a danger that we're going to end up, if we're not careful, intentional, and thoughtful, uh, we're going to end up with work feeling more disconnected than ever before. And so firstly, I think this is why for people like yourself, you've got so much to teach all of us. But secondly, there's a real cautionary note for me because in two years' time or in three years' time or in five years' time, we'll we'll look back at this time and go, wow, but it was so obvious. Did we not know that this was going to be, you know, that we were going to have culture wars between our young workers and our old workers? We were going to have this sort of polarization where the older workers are, are describing snowflake workers and the, the younger workers are describing these sort of reactionary conservative older workers. And we're going to have really the sort of the, the issues that society's really starting to experience. We're going to have those things at work. So, you know, I'm very alarmed by, I don't want the upside of remote work to be destroyed by this, this growing disconnection. And I think this is why it's such an important moment for people like yourself. Yeah, I, I think we've already seen that start to happen. I mean, the New York Times office this this summer Absolutely. I think went through something just like that. Um, Bruce, I'm going to get theological for a moment, and I don't often do this, but I, honestly, this is what I've been thinking about recently. And um, the God word is one that I never never really use publicly because it's such a it's such a challenging word, and, and for so many of us, it immediately conjures up this kind of. Dis, dis, <laughs> this absurd kind of bearded man in the sky who 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 makes decisions, which is not at all uh, how I uh, or most theologians would would think about what God is. But one of my favorite metaphors for the divine is a, a sense of deep relationship, deep connection, and and to to just touch on kind of Christian theology for a moment, the image of the Trinity, right, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. It's not actually about those three separate things, at least how I understand it. It's really about the relationship between the three of them. And so if, if we want to think about the quality of our relationship is not just about friendship or do we like someone or do we not. It's about to what extent we are living within a, a sort of a, a divine relationship, a holiness that, that if those relationships are strained, that we're losing that sense of, of what gives life ultimate meaning. Now, that might really resonate with you. It might not at all. But what, mm. what, for me, what it does is it raises the stakes of what this is about because it's, it's, it's not just about the survival of a company or about even the kind of culture of our society, but it's really about how do we understand ourselves to be in relationship with the world around us. And if all of those relationships become antagonistic, if they become competitive, if they become strained, that, that I think we lose a sense of ourselves in that experience. So I think you're absolutely right. It's so important to, to tend to them and to, to see the inherent value of them. It's not just about once you're in good relationship, what are you going to produce together? It's actually the, the quality of the relationship is itself uh, important. And, and it, we see this in, in all sorts of research data that's coming out at the moment. You, you pointed to the, the kind of the structural ways in which we are more alone, that this is what people talk about as social isolation, right? You're getting married later or you're living alone, you're working from home. You know, the, the, the growing number of people who literally just spend more time on their own, we talk about that as social isolation. Mm-hmm. But that experience of loneliness is about the discrepancy between our experience of our relationships and the desire that we have for the relationships in our lives. And so you can be surrounded by all sorts of people at a party and still feel really lonely because you're not having the quality of relationships. But when those two things combine, that we're both spending more and more time on our our own, and we're not having the experience of a relationship that, that feels fulfilling, it's deadly. You know, loneliness is now associated with mortality at the same rates as obesity or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So that th- this is this is both on a health level and I think on a kind of spiritual uh, spiritual level, a, a really enormous threat to to our well-being. Yeah, I mean, you, you pose such important questions there. And I guess people might see you run an organization and, you know, because it's it's probably a purpose-led organization. <laughs> yeah. And so so you have access point to these things. But I wonder if, if people are either in a big corporation or yeah. they feel like they don't have a voice. Is there any en- entry point to them having conversations on these things or are we just dependent on en- enlightened bosses? 
God help us if we are. Um, no. <laughs> well, the, the first thing I want to say is that the workplace doesn't have to be the only place that we that we explore these questions, right? And I think yes. I think we're all poorer if, if if that's where our imagination is limited. So um, it might be that you can have wonderful conversations with a partner or family or friends or, or, or a neighborhood association that you're part of a, or, or an organization that you're passionate about. Um, so let's let's not limit our thinking with just the workplace. But if the workplace is one of those places where you feel like there are a couple of people, you know, in your team or elsewhere where where you can where you can explore these kind of questions um finding a small scale at which you can explore this i think is always the right place to start so is it on your team is it with um you know another person that you really connect with is it around an interest group right that still meets maybe online if you're within a larger company right you have the shared interest groups that, that that get together so i think those are the places to start you know the thing i've been surprised by over and over again is even in the most uh, shall i put it it's like secularly oriented organizations when people feel safe to explore these bigger questions it is remarkable <laughs> the kind of conversations yes. you end up having because although we are a, a much less religious certainly in the uk much less religious country even in america culturally it's shifting enormously quickly People are still trying to figure out why does suffering exist? How do I live a meaningful life? What's the right thing to do? It's not like we figured that out. It's just we're drawing on different sources to help us navigate those questions. And so if we can cultivate like safe spaces in which we can explore those questions together, it will be, you know, bees, bees to honey, honey to, honey to the bee. Uh, we're all hungry for this. And so if, if, you, can, if you can host a conversation like that, um, you'll be surprised at, the, the, I think, the resonance uh, that folks will have for, for the conversation. Fascinating. It's a massive opportunity for me. It strikes me that the, the, the organizations that seem to do this well, I was really struck when I was reading about the remote, uh, the, the remote only firm, the, um, Automatic, that mm. make WordPress. And they sort of have these gatherings every, in normal times, every quarter, once a quarter, right. and they f- fly everyone together. But it's very much about creating moments of celebrating each other, about yes. bringing each other together, not to sit and watch loads of slideware and not to to sit in collective meetings, but what can we do to sort of foster the sense of yes. energized togetherness? And it just it just struck me as a, just such an inspiring different way to think about what you're trying to create and inevitably then the answers are very different you know we don't start by saying right you know gavin's got 15 minutes <laughs> rita's got 15 minutes we don't start by that we start by saying right we want to forge a sense of togetherness here so it's not about stage time it's about how do we do that it just really strikes me that a lot of your lessons are directly applicable to that Absolutely. I mean, that's why you're seeing the kind of explosion of, you know, the, the adult summer camps, for example, is one of the trends that we've been tracking. Because mm. in a culture where so much of our work, uh, work life certainly is around productivity and is around performance, you know, you, you need a, a way of engaging one another that's around play, um, that's around imagination, that's around relationship first. And so that's what those kind of gatherings that happen, you know, infrequently, like we talked about before, they're going deep, but infrequently, uh, and, and that allow for the cultivation of the quality of relationship, that that's really the focus. Because if the relationship is there, then you can navigate all the technical questions that you're going to have to navigate together as a team, you know, on a, on a shared work project. Thinking about ways in which you can cultivate that, I think is absolutely key. More from my conversation with Casper to Kyle after this. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to my conversation with Casper to Kyle. Are there any cautionary notes just to sort of finish? Like if, if oh, any yeah. <laughs> company, if any company or team or organization or part of a team had, you know, the opportunity to chat to a community manager at Bramwatch last week, Abadesia Osansadi, and she was very focused on resource groups because that was a good start point for building community because yep. it's, it's authentic connections of people of identity. Yeah. And um, so she was like, you start with small authentic things because things were good stuff will come from that. But is, is there any cautionary notes that you would warn anyone if they're setting about thinking about these things? The biggest challenge is that how can we create an authentic community if you can fire me? The differences mm. in power are fundamentally opposed to the principles of community life in terms of that, that level of, of your power over me in terms of you know, my livelihood and well-being. So that is the, the biggest, I think, hurdle to cross. And so why resource groups are a good place to start is that, that you're not starting in a room where a boss and a secretary are in the same conversation, you know, one hopes. Uh, you, you're, you're building on a different foundation, which is a shared identity or a shared interest. So that's why often those places are, the, are really safe and, and sensible place to start. A lot depends on what I would call the, the spiritual maturity of leaders. Um, if leaders are boundaried, understand the way in which their team might project things onto them, both good and bad. Uh, if leaders have an external place in which they can process whatever comes up, those leaders are likely to be much more trustworthy when team members bring real life questions uh, to their boss, which, you know, especially younger employees are very likely to do. First of all, the thing that really matters is, is, is just the, the maturity and the mental and spiritual health of, of individual leaders, massively important. And if you don't trust you know, your, your leader in that context, be, be very, very careful. Because when we make space for these questions of ultimate concern, if it goes wrong, it hurts. And it can actually do more damage than not having brought them up at all. That's another really key element. I think, you know, we talked about before, not trying to send, center everything in the workplace. One of the things that I'm really interested in is, is the workplace of the future going to be a place in which people might bring these questions, but rather than centering the reflective conversations, the activities, the practices in the workplace, will employers see themselves more as a conduit to say, you're bringing this question, I can connect you with an external group or an external kind of service provider, just like we do with pensions, for example, who is going to, who's going to, you know, uh, accompany you through this process of grieving the loss of your mother, uh, right? We know that you're going to need support. Um, and we're going to connect you with with an amazing group of people get together for dinner to, to talk about their experience of grief. But we're not going to center that in the workplace. So that's another thing that we're going to have to navigate together to figure out what is the role of the company um, if it isn't one of these kind of uh, standard-bearing organizations that really do this well. Interesting. So the, so the company itself doesn't need to be the community, but more it I can agree. sort of, it can create a sense of belonging of different affinity groups, different interest groups. And meanwhile, by creating a positive environment as well, it's allowing people to to celebrate their differences as well. So it yeah. might be just, you know, these parents or a, run, a running club or a, right. a movie club. It, it seems like those things can all be in service of just making people feel more together. I, I, exactly. I think a lot of this is about giving people permission to acknowledge that this stuff is real. Because the choice for me isn't, do people bring these questions to work or not? They're already bringing them to work. The question is, what do we do in response? 
And I think you can go down the route of saying, okay, we're going to try and really make space for that here, which, as I said, demands all sorts of, of, of maturity and, and, and skill. Or are we going to say, we're going to create pathways to make sure that you don't get lost or stuck or, or that you're isolated when you have something happen or as you're asking a big question about your life and meaning and purpose. We're going to resource you with relationships and connections uh, and opportunities so that you have a place to go. Because wh whether we like it or not, the workplace is increasingly becoming a center of our relational and, and meaning and purpose-oriented lives. Perfect. Now, obviously, you've you've been incredibly prolific. And aside from your Harry Potter podcast, <laughs> where, where can people find your work? Yeah, absolutely. So the organization I, I co-founded is called Sacred Design Lab, and you can find us at sacred.design. I write an occasional newsletter exploring questions like this, um, and you can sign up at caspertk.com, and, and the book is called The Power of Ritual. Um, so I really, uh, really appreciate the work you're doing, Bruce, and the conversations you're having, because I, I, I just think this is massively important. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, I know. Look, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted. And, you know, for me, it's so fascinating. I, th I think it's sort of why, why I scribbled... This guy's a genius in the uh, in the <laughs> in the front of my copy of your book. So, um, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, today's guest, Casper to Kyle. Like I say, his book, The Power of Ritual: Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices, is available now, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Very enjoyable book, actually. It's filled with personal stories. It's filled with stories that extend beyond his experience. It's very readable. Next week, we've got a final episode in this short series on community. I'm going to be chatting to Gillian Richardson. Gillian is the author of Unlonely Planet, and she's also the, the organiser of a, a major community building organisation in New York. She's got incredibly practical experience. And the reason why I've put her episode last is she's got plenty of cautionary notes, really. If, if Casper had some concerns about how this might be used at work, then I think Gillian contributes to that in a really, in really insightful way. I think you're going to love that discussion. If you've enjoyed these episodes, please do let me know. Always love to hear from people on LinkedIn or on, on Twitter, or you can reply to my newsletter. And you'll get the newsletter at the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate it. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.